Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. From the standpoint of the, the history of uh, Western intellectual history, the Galileo affair is one of the most influential moments. It's also one of the most misunderstood moments. And uh, John Paul II, uh, when he gave his important speech about the Galileo affair, uh, after the church had done intense investigation, he said, the new science, with its methods and the freedom of research which they implied, obliged the theologians of that time to examine their own criteria of scriptural interpretation. Most of them did not know how to do so. Paradoxically, Galileo, a sincere believer, showed himself to be more perceptive in this regard than the theologians who opposed him. My guest, Dr. Corey Hayes, has penned a wonderful uh, piece in Church Life Journal called The End of the Galileo Affair, Galileo's Theological Contributions. And uh, Corey teaches upper school theology and humanities at John Paul the Great Academy in Louisiana. He previously served as senior professor of philosophy and theology at St. Joseph Seminary College, and his research and teaching interests include uh, Byzantine and Eastern Christian theology, philosophy of nature, and the relationship between theology, philosophy, and the empirical sciences. Corey, good to have you with me. Thank you. Yeah, good to be here. Thanks for the, the invitation. Let's. Most people, as you lead off your article with, most people think that the traditional Christian way of interpreting the Bible was very narrowly literal, and that it was only in modern times that some Christians abandoned that literal approach in favor of scientific, or really forced to by scientific discoveries. And that's the reason Galileo was condemned in 1633. It's because the church had this very narrowly literal straitjacket, and Galileo, uh, in his belief in uh, Copernicanism and uh, the Earth revolving or orbiting the Sun, um, that that couldn't be fit into uh, a proper understanding of Scripture. Was it really just a battle between scriptural literalists? And the new scientists? Um, not quite. So, as I mentioned in the piece, and this is well known by um, theologians, church historians, um, that from very early on in Christian history, say, for example, with St. Augustine of Hippo, mm -hmm. um, there had been lessons learned about you have to be one has to be very, very careful interpreting biblical texts. Um, for Augustine, it was particularly Genesis. Um, one of his main concerns was one has to be very careful in interpreting Genesis, for example. Um, and he warned Christians against making sort of overt claims about the natural world based upon a surface reading of Genesis, because, well, it often it happened that you had pagan natural philosophers who had a better sense of what was going on in nature, and all this seemed to do was kind of, you know, put the scriptures up and the Christian faith up for scorn. Yeah. And so yeah. from the very early times, especially regarding Genesis and Genesis's certain claims about the natural world, um, the construction of the earth and the firmament, etc., 
there had been a deep Christian tradition, a Catholic tradition of being very, very cautious. And this is tradition Augustine and even um, those others in the Galileo affair knew well. Uh, so Galileo, didn't he, didn't he try to appeal to that uh, tradition? Uh, he appealed to that tradition um, very powerfully and eloquently, actually, in 1615 in a work called A Letter to the Grand Duchess Christina. Mm-hmm. Christina of Lorraine was the mother of his patron, and it was a bit of a conceit. The letter wasn't really to her. It was meant to win people over to his position. Mm-hmm. And in it, he's actually a master of using Augustine's on the literal interpretation of Genesis for sure. But one of the things Galileo didn't count on, I think you might say, is sort of uh, the spirit of his age um, and actually the long shadow of the Protestant Reformation and certain abuses in biblical interpretation. And the Church had become very, very cautious since the Council of Trent in this regard. And that's something I think Galileo underestimated or didn't fully appreciate. Hmm. Uh, So in... In the wake of the Protestant Reformations, the, the Church took a more conservative approach to scriptural interpretation. Um, out of sure, so yeah, one of the one of the issues on which the Reformation pivoted were interpretations of Augustine regarding justification. Yep. So Luther appeals to Augustine all the time. John Calvin famously said uh, something to the effect, in all things, Augustine is our father. You know, <laughs> right. Um, and so one of the things the Reformation had, pr- uh, that, excuse me, the trend had prudentially um, laid down in the Council is that any biblical interpretation regarding, quote, faith and morals that departed from the consensus reading of the fathers— was forbidden both in public and in private, um, by the way. And so this had sort of, for reasons that were, you know, in the Times, understandable, um, tended to want to narrow um, narrow what was kind of possible. Um, and even in Galileo's time, we're not even 100 years on the other side of the Reformation, and it had really sort of transformed uh, the face of Europe and the Church's place in European Christianity. Well, but Galileo would have said, well, astronomical questions are not matters of faith and morals, and therefore the rule laid down by the Council of Trent doesn't doesn't really apply to me. Um, he argues that actually quite forcefully in many, many places. Um, and he probably, from our perspective, um, most people would say that seems uh, quite obvious. Um, but in his day, um, it didn't seem that obvious very many. So take St. Robert Bellarmine, for example. Mm -hmm. He agreed with Galileo and says, of course, you're right. Regarding the topic or the issue of the Constitution of the Heavens, of course this isn't a matter of faith. Um, But Bellarmine says, well, however, it seems the author of Joshua plainly asserts something like geocentrism, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's not a matter of faith regarding the topic, but Bellarmine would say, regarding the speaker. Oh. Now, Galileo had a perfectly good answer to this, he, based on Aquinas and Augustine. Maybe the author of Joshua was just talking in accordance with common experience of the senses. It mm-hmm. appears the sun rises and sets, so of course he could talk this way. But Bellarmine didn't think that was convincing to his mind. Yeah. Um, did, 
were Galileo, let's just shift gears a little bit here. Were Galileo's scientific arguments uh, that compelling? Um, well, it depends on one's measure. So one of the things that every player in the Galileo affair agreed, um, several principles, by the way, to get to answer your question eventually. Sure. Everyone agreed on the unity of truth. Everyone agreed that truths of faith and truths of reason cannot, in principle, ever contradict. All contradictions are merely apparent. So everyone agreed on this. Everyone even agreed that scientific facts, as we would call them, that's anachronistic. They wouldn't have used that, quite that terminology. Mm-hmm. Are utterly relevant for interpreting the Bible. Um, so everyone agreed in that regard. And even St. Robert Bellarmine famously in a letter to a priest, Father Paolo Antonio Foscarini, who was a Carmelite and, like Galileo, mathematician and astronomer. Bellarmine says, look, if you can demonstrate, and that's the word he uses, demonstrate that Copernicanism is true, he says, then of course we would have to look at biblical passages differently, right? Yeah. Yes. Um, but there are two things at play here. Um, Bellarmine says demonstrate. Um, he doesn't mean exactly what we would mean, sort of by modern scientific notions of reasoning to the best explanation based on evidence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beside that fact, all of Galileo's data points. So in 1610, he had helped design the first telescope useful for celestial observations, by today's standards, utterly primitive, by the way. Mm-hmm. It didn't work half the time. The weather had to be perfect. But nonetheless, um, in 1610, he discovered the Jovian satellites or moons of Jupiter, that Venus has phases. Uh, he's the co-discoverer of sunspots with Christoph Scheiner, a Jesuit astronomer. So all of Galileo's data points that could be explained by Copernicanism could also be explained by alternative models. Hmm. Um, Tycho Brahe's model, for example, which was geocentric, Earth at the center, and geostatic, but famously has the moon revolving around the Earth and all other celestial bodies revolving around the sun as it revolves around the Earth. So by the standards of his time and even ours, Galileo doesn't quite have what would constitute proof. Uh, Galileo's favorite proof, so-called, were the motions of the tides. Galileo thought, since we could see this every day, this must be caused, this must be the, the, the kind of strongest proof because it's so obvious. It's not obscure like astronomical reality. So he thought the tides were explained by the motion of the Earth. You might think of water sloshing around in a bowl. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, that is, well, false. <laughs> <laughs> and so by the standards of his own day, didn't, didn't have proof. And proof was slow in coming. So eventually, uh, the aberration of starlight is shown by James Bradley. A phenomenon called stellar parallax is eventually um, demonstrated to be greater than zero. I think it's in 1838 by Friedrich Bessel. And it's really not until Isaac Newton's Principia do we have a cogent mathematical framework in which to even kind of cogently conceive of something like heliocentrism. So <laughs> proof was slow in coming. I mean, this is, this is so amazing, given the flippant way most people approach this discussion of Galileo. It, it, in their mind, it's simply a matter 
of an authoritarian, uh, narrow-minded church with brittle uh, hermeneutical principles, um, imposing them on this uh, free-thinking, brilliant uh, scientist who had established, beyond doubt, uh, the Copernican model. And it's got, it must drive you nuts to see the Galileo name show up in movies and novels as though. <laughs> I, often, I often say whenever I give talks, and I talk about this a lot, um, is whenever, whenever this comes up, um, a seance is held and the specter of Galileo is always kind of raised as the one shining example. <laughs> Corey, hold it there. We'll have to take a break. We'll come back. My guest, Dr. Corey Hayes, uh, teaches upper school theology and humanities at John Paul the Great Academy in Louisiana. He's written a piece called The End of the Galileo Affair, Galileo's Theological Contributions. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Corey Hayes. He has uh, penned a wonderful uh, article, actually two, The End of the Galileo Affair, Galileo's Theological Contributions in Church Life Journal, and then uh, also Even Doctors of the Church Make Theological Mistakes Now and Then. And we're taking a look at the Galileo Affair and trying to uh, understand it. I think um, Corey, I think a lot of people were surprised to know that uh, St. John Paul II uh, still saw this as uh, a problem in Catholic intellectual history that needed to be settled. And uh, tell me a little bit about why this was uh, uh, an itch he had to scratch. Oh, in terms of John Paul II, you mean? Yeah. Um, well, you make me think of actually the speech uh, from which you quoted right before, um, which we tend to call sort of uh, Pope St. John Paul II's rehabilitation right, of right. Galileo. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I jokingly uh, say this sometimes. So of all the wonderful things of Pope St. John Paul II's pontificate, um, I've uh, actually not jokingly referred to it as sort of the great apology tour, right? Sort yes. The great, okay. The great Recon- reconciliation tour, and you, when you think of um, a particular, you might say, historical mistake or even scandal, and look, it is just true, and I use the word scandal um, in its sort of ancient acceptation of a stumbling block. Mm-hmm. In Greek, a scandalon is a pebble in your sandal and you can't walk right, you know, this sort of thing. Um, that he knew the Galileo affair was kind of the gift that has kept on giving <laughs> for those who, who wanted to paint, right. um, who wanted to paint, and it's just true, wanted to paint the church kind of as a programmatic, um, anti-rational persecutor of, you know, the human scientific endeavor, the rational endeavor, whatever. Um, yeah, I think for... Just those reasons alone, um, he saw it as fairly crucial and of a kind of a transcendent, transcendent importance as one is, you know, if we need to look at, you know, church history and see mistakes, this was, you know, if not top candidate, let's say in the top five. Mm-hmm. And 
so he emphasized that uh, the theologians uh, of Galileo's time didn't uh, examine their own they, they didn't adequately examine they were not self-critical regarding their own uh, approach to scripture and uh, there are three three factors followed uh, contributed to this failure one as you pointed out the rules of scriptural interpretation at the Council of Trent uh, which were formed uh, in response to the various Protestant reformations uh, secondly a new understanding of science's methods and thirdly, new ideas about the autonomy of science. Um, today, those, those, we understand scientific methodology, uh, the whole philosophy of science areas can get very technical, um, and people often argue about scientific method and its limits, um, and people argue about the autonomy of science, uh, how do you um, uh, do? We always know where science ends and anthropology begins, which then gets us to the nature of the human sure. person. Uh, sure. And now we're in clearly theological ground. So sure, sure. Um, so to start, so in Gal- one of the things that the Galileo Fair has helped um, or has aided. You know, uh, what's the thing? God writes straight with crooked lines. Sort right, of thing. right. One of the things that the Galileo Affair has enabled us to do is actually to clarify some things that we thought were clear, but apparently weren't crystal clear. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the difference between, let's say, a scientific matter versus a philosophical matter, let's say, versus a theological matter. Right. Um, so... Um, and actually, in um, his letter, of, of, I won't say famous, famous to me, um, a letter that uh, Pope St. John Paul II wrote to Father George Coyne at, at the time, who was the head of the Vatican Observatory. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Chris Baglow, actually, who runs um, the Science and Religion Initiative at the McGrath Institute for Church Life yes. at the University of Notre Dame, who I do a lot of uh, work with them. And actually, it was actually the genesis of my work, almost the genesis of my work doing things in Galileo. Um, calls this particular letter to Coyne kind of the charter, if you will, um, of the sort of relation between faith and science. Oh. Um, Pope St. John Paul II really sort of lays out this notion um, of proper autonomy, both of theology and both of the natural sciences. So it can be tricky, and possibly in some particular cases tricky, but in the main, uh, maybe one good way to think about it is the sort of question one is asking, or the kind of thing um, at which one is trying to get. So you might think of it this way. If the answer to your question um, is best answered in a metric way, or a way that can ultimately be modeled by or expressed, let's say, mathematically, which in fact is, say, the language of physics, this kind of thing, mm-hmm. you're probably dealing with a question that is a properly scientific one. And notice I don't say philosophical or rational one. There are all kinds of ways reason can get at the world. Um, as it turns out, our world is material and is 
can be modeled and thought of metrically, mm-hmm. right, in terms of measurement, sure. et cetera. Yeah. And for those aspects of reality, it may just be, and by the way, I think it is, that the sort of modern construal of science and scientific method may be the best way to get at those aspects of the world. Right. Um, right. It just turns out that we think the world is a much richer and deeper place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that that's yeah. not kind of all there is to it. Yeah. It is unfortunate, uh, from in my view, that oftentimes you'll have people who are actually very talented um, researchers and theoreticians in various domains of science um, who are very good at what they do, but they then, based on properly scientific claims, try to extend those claims into things like we would say kind of metaphysics and then begin to talk about materialism and all of these other kinds of things. How much does the soul pro- that weigh? Are properly I mean, philosophical, that are properly philosophical matters and not scientific matters at all. Sorry, yeah. you go ahead. No, I was saying, I mean, this is the kind of thing some, somebody says, well, how much does the soul weigh? You have a soul? How much does the soul weigh? Well, it's that's not the kind of thing that is measured uh, sure. by pounds. Uh, it, it doesn't occupy space. Uh, so, uh, you know, by definition, that's outside the realm of uh, the empirical sciences. Fair enough? Oh, fair enough, and all sorts of things besides. Uh, even even um, someone who would claim to be a materialist of a sort, um, this has been pointed out even in ancient times, by sometimes by materialists themselves, it is virtually impossible to thoroughly act like one. <laughs> meaning meaning um, there just seems to be something in the human approach to reality. Um, at the very least, we must act, and the world strikes us as if it has qualitative features mm-hmm. that it can't be reduced to, you know, the material, the metric, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this, I mean, this gets, in, in start trying to study consciousness, uh, for sure. instance, in in strictly impersonal ways, always comes back to well, <laughs> are you the person who's doing the investigation, and are you conscious? Well, yeah, <laughs> it's you can't really entirely separate uh, consciousness. You can't really study consciousness as a purely impersonal matter, uh, since the observer uh, is is conscious. Um, sure, well put. So, um, now, the, how how effective was this Galileo project that John Paul II? I mean, has this has this been well received? Um, um, as far as I can tell, and from all I've read, yeah, fairly well received. Um, now, the, the the shame of the thing is. Um, that you do the the best you can, and sometimes the best you can is pretty good, but depending on uh, what Aquinas would call the mode of the receiver, meaning how one is disposed to accept what you do. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, successful in uh, historical ways. So when you read any decent historian, believer or non-believer, um, if they know their stuff, they're actually quite good on the Galileo affair. Um, and can see it in a nuanced way, um, and see it not in this kind of sloganish fashion. Mm-hmm. So that's actually quite common. It's just unfortunate um, those are never the historians anyone ever wants to interview or have for a soundbite yeah. or those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And uh, it's it's one one of the great problems is this. It never seems to go away. This idea of the great warfare between science and theology. 
no matter how many uh, historians of science will say, no, there's not been a consistent uh, warfare between science and theology. Uh, In fact, the the Galileo affair, it seems to me, is the poster child for the thing. Um, It sticks out precisely because of its exceptional nature. So I I alluded to before the break, the newsroom seance, right, where they get out the crystal ball, turn out the lights, (laughs) and raise the specter of Galileo. There's a reason for this, that he's really the only specter that they raise. Um, The Galileo affair has been the gift that keeps on giving, but it's really one of the few, if not the only, gifts you have. Um, It's very hard to find decent analogs because it's so singular, so scandalous for sure, and I think every um, uh, you know Catholic should own that to some degree. Sure, but it's singular, or fairly singular, rather. One could quibble about you know one's criteria for a thing being singular, or unique, but it stands out precisely because it's an exception. Yeah, like sometimes exceptions do. Yeah, yeah. No, I I, I agree. Uh, you, we don't have much time, but I thought I'd ask you to just in your essay even doctors of the church make theological mistakes now and then uh sure talk to me about cardinal robert bellerman so um there's oh man we could there's several interesting things about bellerman here in the galileo affair um two things two things quickly one about the mistake but one uh, a mistake that bellerman makes that in his defense is in some ways understandable so um Bellerman knows that St. Augustine as well or even better than Galileo does. So he knows on the, Augustine's on the literal, inter, literal interpretation of Genesis, etc. But one of the big differences between Galileo and Bellerman is as follows. Um, St. Augustine's caution about basically getting Scripture to write sort of checks on physical scientific matters, right, mm-hmm. that she possibly can't cash. So Augustine always wants to find, you know, possible alternate explanations. Now, Bellarmine, it seems to me, sees this as a maneuver you use when you encounter problems in the text, hmm. meaning if there's a particular physical claim in Scripture that doesn't seem to square with what we think we know by natural science, then that's time to get creative. Hmm. Otherwise, you just take the biblical text at face value whenever you can. Hmm, that's interesting. What Galileo wants to do is take Augustine's principle, it seems to me, and not make it this kind of um, tool in a toolkit, right? That you take it out when you need it, yeah. but to use it as a general principle in all of our approaches to the Bible. Yeah, yeah. So Bellarmine, uh, he's, he says, look, and this is not an untraditional position in his day. Every biblical passage has a literal meaning, which is what the sacred author intends, and a metaphorical meaning. Well, okay, if you look at some biblical passages, Joshua chapter 10, where Joshua asked the Lord to stop the motion of the sun, right, to lengthen the day, which was a problematic passage in Galileo's day, it is kind of difficult to see what that could be a metaphor. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. Yeah, so Bellarmine has got this kind of, has got this kind of hurdle where he's like, look, it's either literal and plain or it's a metaphor, like most humans talk, and what could this be a metaphor for? So he has limitations in that regard. Well, thank you so much, Corey. I really appreciate your work and uh, hope we can talk again in the future. My pleasure, and I would be more than willing to do so. God bless. 
Dr. Corey Hayes teaches upper school theology and humanities at John Paul the Great Academy in Louisiana. Um, we'll have his uh, two essays from Church Life Journal available for you in the um, Cresta Guest Archives. I'm Al Cresta.